there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. In 1968, Melvin Anzik agreed to give the local schools some of the earth from his Montana ranch for a construction project. Two construction workers were contracted to dig up a section of the ranch and transport the dirt back to the school. Sarah Anzik, Melvin's daughter, was two years old when the dig took place. She doesn't remember it herself, but she remembers the stories her parents would tell about it. What happened next changed the course of her life. She said, quote, The men were removing sandstone from the hillside on the property when one of the workers noticed an unusual stone that had dropped out of the loader bucket, end quote. The workers quickly realized that this was going to be an unusual dig. Over the course of the night, they uncovered distinct tools carved from antler and stone, including some of the fluted projectile points associated with the Clovis people, believed to be America's most ancient inhabitants. But that wasn't all they found. One of the men called Mel Anzik that night, saying, quote, I think we could have something pretty interesting here, end quote. They were right. Among the stone tools, they found bones, human bones. These were and are the only human remains ever found near Clovis points. They could hold the most important clue ever uncovered about who the Clovis were, where they came from, and whether their ancestors still walked the earth. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this podcast, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every week, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm your host, Molly. This is our second episode on the mystery of the Clovis people. Some of you have been asking us how you can help support the show. Well, if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to support us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. This week, we'll be examining the evidence for and against the theory that the Clovis people were the first humans to arrive in the Americas and attempt to settle the debate once and for all. You can listen to previous episodes of Unexplained Mysteries, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Thursday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram, at ParCast. 
on Twitter at Parcast Network and at Parcast.com. In our previous episode, we introduced you to the Clovis people, thought to be the first inhabitants of the Americas. In one of the world's earliest great human migrations, the Clovis came through Siberia and headed east across the land bridge Beringia, where the modern-day Bering Strait sits. But giant ice sheets and glaciers prevented the Clovis from going further into the Americas for thousands of years. Finally, about 13,500 years ago, the ice sheets melted and the Clovis were able to walk into the North American continent through Alaska. They quickly settled throughout the Americas, leaving behind their distinctive fluted projectile points, or spearheads, all over the continents. And presumably, their descendants inhabited these lands ever since. But there's still a lot we don't understand. If the first people to settle the Americas were the Clovis, and the Clovis walked into the Americas 13,500 years before present, why are there so many sites that seem to predate the arrival of the Clovis? Could another group of people have arrived before the Clovis? If so, how? And who were they? And what makes us think that the Clovis are the ancestors of today's Native Americans? How do we know the Clovis didn't simply die out? What makes us think the Native Americans didn't descend from a later or an earlier migration? What's the difference if people walked over the land bridge or got here some other way? There are a lot of people who have a stake in the answers to these questions. The people who study those early human migrations want to better understand how we have moved around the world and how humans have made their mark on it. Remember our discussion of the megafauna extinctions across the Americas from our last episode? Now imagine not knowing that human beings were on the continent at that time. It's a huge piece of the puzzle that would be missing from our understanding of the past. So by better piecing together when people were in North America, we can perhaps better understand other events throughout prehistory. Maybe we could even use the lessons of the past to make better decisions about our future. But it's not just scientists and archaeologists who want to understand the past in this way. These questions have, in many ways, haunted Native Americans since the European colonization of the Americas. If Native Americans did, in fact, descend from the Clovis people, it strengthens their claim to both the land they first settled and their ancestors buried beneath it. Which makes discovering the truth all the more important. Until recently, the Clovis first theory was widely accepted. But while many academics stick to Clovis first, there is a growing body of evidence to suggest they may not have been the first humans in the Americas. In the 1970s, archaeologist James Adovasio conducted a dig in Meadowcroft, Pennsylvania. He had spoken with the town local, Albert Miller, who told him of a strange lance-shaped projectile point that Miller had found near a groundhog hole back in 1955. Perhaps Adovasio thought the projectile point was from the Clovis culture. After all, plenty of Clovis sites had been uncovered in recent decades. But a quick look at the projectile point proved that it wasn't Clovis in origin. Clovis points were fluted. The ones at the Meadowcroft site were not. Atavasio may have initially assumed that they were looking at a Paleo-Indian site from a later era. But when Atavasio dated the spearheads or projectile points he had unearthed, the results were astounding. They dated all the way back to 16,000 years before present. 
2,500 years before the earliest Clovis were thought to have arrived. This claim was met with immediate controversy. How could Atavasio be saying humans had left tools and evidence of settlements in America 2,500 years before the first confirmed arrival of the Clovis? Back when these sites were first discovered, it was generally assumed that their apparent age was the result of a carbon dating error or other kinds of human error. But as more discoveries have mounted over time, it's becoming increasingly plausible that the findings are accurate and someone beat the Clovis to the tip of South America. Atavasio stuck to his claim despite the controversy. And since then, sites have popped up throughout the Americas that can be dated two to 3,000 years before the Clovis first arrived. These are present throughout the continental U.S., as well as Canada, Brazil, Venezuela, Colombia, and Chile. So if we found sites in the Americas that appear to predate the Clovis, who might have left them? And how did they get there? In part one, we pointed out that it was possible for a seafaring culture to spread along the Pacific coast, staying in refugia, safe harbors around the mouths of rivers, free from glacial ice where life can thrive. Any evidence for such settlements would be underwater today. Though underwater archaeology is amazingly a tool we can now employ, it is time-consuming, expensive, and a young field in the nascent stages of development. Unless we're fairly certain we'll find a pre-Clovis settlement in an area, and the evidence will be robust enough to have survived thousands of years of waves and erosion, no one's going to fund an expedition with submersibles and divers. But what if there were an exception? A kind of refugia that wouldn't be drowned under the rising seas? What if these early Pacific Coast explorers sailed upriver, sufficiently far inland, so their settlements would have survived? If they reached a high enough elevation, they might still be there today. That's exactly what some archaeologists believe. If you look at the placement of these potential pre-Clovis settlements, some of them are in places that fit this pattern. That helps explain why we found possible pre-Clovis sites in Chile, almost as far south as Tierra del Fuego, but not too many in between there and the Bering Strait. It's also intriguing that the possible pre-Clovis settlements at Cueva Fell and Monte Verde have material wares and cultural artifacts that are decidedly non-Clovis. They built lean-to structures not seen in Clovis settlements. In the words of archaeologist David Meltzer, the artifacts included, quote, wooden artifacts and house planks, fruits, berries, seeds, leaves and stems, as well as marine algae, crayfish, and chunks of animal hide, end quote. There are also clues that suggest they traded with communities up to 250 kilometers away, since some artifacts in the sites are not native to the area. This picture, though not resolved, is somewhat clearer than other pre-Clovis theories. Settlers arriving via boats along a Pacific coastal route is probably the most persuasive case for pre-Clovis settlement. But for whatever reason, these earlier settlers do not appear to have ventured much further inland. They stayed put along the coast. Modern DNA testing has also suggested that settlers arrived in the Americas before the Clovis, though nothing is conclusive. Nevertheless, it seems entirely plausible that the Americas were populated as far back as 40,000 years ago. But who were these early adventurers who conquered the ocean and tamed a wild land? Does evidence of their settlements exist, 
or were they washed away over time, reclaimed by the sea? We'll examine more theories on the earliest American peoples after the break. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Now, back to the story. Evidence abounds suggesting the Clovis were not the first people in the Americas. But if not them, who? One explanation is known as the Solutrean Hypothesis. It was conceived in the 1970s and first published in 1999 by Professor Dennis Stanford at the Smithsonian. This theory connected the Clovis to the Solutrean culture, which flourished in France about 17,000 years ago. That would predate the Clovis by around 4,000 years. Solutrians developed a similar arrowhead design that resembled Clovis arrowheads, which proponents argue indicates that they were a potential cultural influence. That would mean that the first settlers in the Americas migrated from Europe instead of Asia, as was previously suggested. 17,000 years ago, when the glaciers and polar ice caps were at their greatest extent, it may have been feasible for migrants to cross in the extreme North Atlantic, traveling via pack ice and boat. And if it was possible, the Solutrians might have been able to do it. How do we know that? Because we have evidence of this technique having been used successfully in a more recent past. About 4,000 years ago, the Siberian ancestors of the modern Inuit crossed the Bering Strait going from Russia to Alaska. Starting around a thousand years ago, the Inuits spread throughout the coastlines and islands of the remote Canadian Arctic, replacing the earlier Dorset culture that lived in the area. The Inuit made it as far east as Greenland, where they encountered the Norse. The Norse and Inuit became locked in a struggle for control of the Greenland coast. By the late 15th century, the Inuit had proven victorious. They went on to control the island for almost 300 years. It might seem like a small detail, but the Inuit succeeded because they were able to stitch watertight clothing that was superior to that of the Norse. They could safely take to the choppy seas of the Arctic and hunt whales and other sea creatures. Their remarkable watertight clothes were stitched using a toolkit that included bone needles. While this might seem unrelated to the Solutrean hypothesis, it actually supports the theory in 2002, archaeologists unearthed a Solutrean bone toolkit that included a needle that proponents say is similar to the Inuit design. They believe this bone needle is proof that an Atlantic-Arctic crossing by the Solutrians was possible. There's also a small piece of genetic evidence, a genetic marker found in some Europeans which is present in some modern native populations. But the Solutrean hypothesis falls short of explaining many important pieces of evidence, even before we consider genetics. 
the Salutrians are separated from the earliest Clovis artifacts by a staggering 4,000 years. Furthermore, the similarity between the Salutrian and Clovis arrowheads is the centerpiece of the argument. Unfortunately, this similarity is not particularly remarkable. Ancient peoples the world over independently invented similar tools, weapons, and pottery. It's most likely a coincidence. Additionally, their bone needles notwithstanding, the Inuit never crossed the Atlantic in spite of having some of the best Arctic exploration tools available. There are some who believe, based on Inuit oral traditions, that the Inuit may have reached Iceland, but that is as far as they got. Could the Salutrians really have done something that not even the Inuit were able to achieve? Is finding a bone needle really enough to say the crossing was possible? The genetic evidence, too, is unpersuasive. The genetic marker in question is not unique to Europeans. It's also found in Asian populations. Furthermore, there's no evidence that the Salutrians had any ability to build boats, much less ones capable of weathering the Atlantic. If the Salutrians didn't even go fishing, could they have crossed the same treacherous, glacier-filled waters that famously sank the Titanic? Proponents argue that there wouldn't be any evidence of seafaring culture in Salutrian France since sea levels then were lower, and any Salutrian coastal sites would be underwater today. But one thing that has survived over the centuries is Salutrian art. The Salutrians made paintings on rock. If they had fishing villages, perhaps a boat would have been painted in a petroglyph. For example, the ancient Hawaiians, famously competent navigators, created petroglyphs of their ships. But we have yet to find any artistic representation of seagoing vessels in Salutrian art. Which reveals another problem within the theory that the Salutrians were the predecessors of the Clovis. There's no evidence yet that the Clovis made similar rock paintings to the Salutrians. Maybe you could argue that the Salutrians weren't the ancestors of the Clovis, but simply beat them to the continent and were then replaced by the Clovis. That would explain why there's no continuation of Salutrian art. But at some point, we have to look at this objectively. The argument in favor is little more than a similar arrowhead design separated by 4,000 years. So why has this theory persisted? Unfortunately, because if it were proved true, this theory would show that the earliest Americans were European. Many white supremacist groups have continued to promote the Salutrian hypothesis to support a narrative that they hold very dear. If Salutrians had arrived in America before the Clovis, then that would suggest that Europeans were indigenous to America, that the Clovis were colonizers, and that the later waves of European settlers were simply reclaiming lost territory. When the Salutrian hypothesis was originally proposed, it was a theory at the edge of the scientific mainstream. Not seen as totally implausible, but not widely accepted. At that time, it was essentially harmless. Truly, the fact that the theory has yet to die out speaks more to the desperation of these fringe white supremacists than to any credibility about the theory itself. Whether the first settlers were Australians who may have reached the Chilean coast, or Siberians who came down the coast in canoes, or the Clovis walking through the gap in the glaciers, the first people in the Americas were not of European origin. There are, of course, still more theories and more questions as to who these early settlers may have been and when exactly they arrived here. 
Some researchers claim to have found evidence of settlements in the Americas as old as 40,000 years ago. We have a few pins up on the corkboard. At some of the sites of the Pacific coastal migration we discussed earlier, archaeologists have unearthed charcoal layers as old as 40,000 years. Charcoal indicates the presence of a fire. 40,000 years ago, the proto-Australian people had the technology necessary to make fire, and they were exploring and expanding all up and down the coast of Asia and Oceania. But could they have gotten to the Americas? Could they have crossed the ocean? First off, who were the Proto-Australians? This is a large group of people whose history, like that of the first Americans, is still being investigated. It appears they arrived in Asia around 70,000 to 60,000 years ago, occupying the entire region, and a branch of this tree extended southward into Australia. Later migrants pushed them out of most of Asia, so today the extant populations of this migration live mostly in the Andaman Islands and in Australia. That's why we're calling them Proto-Australians. They were the ancestors of the indigenous Australian populations, but we aren't suggesting they launched boats to the Americas from Australia itself. If the Proto-Australians did arrive in the Americas so early, it's unlikely they did it in boats that crossed the middle of the Pacific. Though we haven't found remnants of early Australian boats, we know they would have had to use them to cross the 90 kilometers of water separating Australia and New Guinea from other land masses. That meant that they possessed the tools necessary to navigate to land that couldn't be seen on the horizon, that needed some kind of compass or navigational skill to reach, which is remarkable for that time period. But Australian boat technology was probably not sufficiently advanced at that time to cross the Pacific, the largest ocean in the world. Being able to cross 90 kilometers of open water does not necessarily imply those boats could withstand a transoceanic trek. So if the Australians did cross the Pacific, they might have done so near Beringia, like the Clovis. As we mentioned in part one, some Native American oral histories reference crossing an ocean to arrive in their current home. In modern times, historians began to interpret that as reference to a land crossing like Beringia. But given new information, many are beginning to take the oral histories more literally. Perhaps these Native American ancestors were from Australia and literally crossed a sea to arrive here around 38,000 years BCE. Granted, the glaciers we discussed last episode prevented the Clovis from crossing into Alaska 13,000 years ago. So how did the Australians manage the crossing? Well, that's where things get really interesting. 40,000 years ago was actually thousands of years before the last glacial maximum. Turns out, Beringia may not have been totally impassable 40,000 years ago. That means that the Pacific Coastal Route could have been open to early explorers. But it's hard to prove this one way or the other. Almost any site that might have preserved proof of this early crossing is now underwater. But a sparse few sites survived. And they show the presence of fire between 40,000 and 20,000 years ago in a site known to be hospitable to early explorers. It's not definitive proof, but it is quite exciting. These earliest claims are controversial. 
The supposed date of arrival did not coincide with mass extinctions or a layer of artifacts that can be found across both continents, which we might expect had large groups of humans settled the Americas so early. So even if humans did arrive this early, for whatever reason, it does not look like they thrived in quite the same way the Clovis did. And it appears that the Clovis, when they showed up, absorbed or displaced anyone who had arrived before them. Many researchers still question whether Australian settlers arrived 40,000 years ago. It seems far too early. But there is now genetic evidence that at some point they did in fact arrive. A 2015 study by geneticist Pontus Skoglund has linked some of the modern indigenous population of the Amazon rainforest with modern Australian populations. That might sound confusing at first. The Amazon rainforest is not along the Pacific coastal route. But consider this. All throughout history, when an area is successfully colonized by an invading group, the original inhabitants tend to persist in the more remote, difficult to colonize areas. The Amazon rainforest is one of the thickest, most unrelenting jungles in the world. It could have protected entire civilizations from colonization, as explored on our previous episode, Amazon Rings. We see this pattern over and over again, from the Mycenaean conquest of Crete, where the Minoan culture survived for centuries in the highlands, to the Roman conquest of Sardinia, where again the mountains provided a refuge for the native people, to the Spanish conquest of the Andes, where to this day, the remote peaks have a much higher indigenous to European descendant ratio. So if the Clovis sweeping south dislodged Australian peoples from their most hospitable, desirable settlements on the coast, they might not have bothered to push them out of the remotest Amazon with the same thoroughness. David Reich, a geneticist and another author of the paper Skoglund worked on, was shocked by the results. He was also frustrated by how these results complicated the story of the Americas. Reich said, quote, We spent a really long time trying to make this result go away, and it just got stronger. End quote. Reich sampled larger populations to confirm the findings, and persistently, the Amazonian group surveyed showed 2% genetic commonality with modern indigenous Australian populations. This is as close as we could ever hope for, as far as a smoking gun, proof of a remarkable achievement the Trans-Pacific Colonization of the Americas by Proto-Australians. Reich said, quote, There's a strong working model in archaeology and genetics, of which I've been a proponent, that most Native Americans today extend from a single pulse of expansion south of the ice sheets. And that's wrong. We missed something very important in the original data. End quote. For lack of a better name, this founding group has been known as Proto-Australians. Now, the Reich-Skoglund study has given us a new name for the group, Population Y. This word comes from Ipiquera, the word for ancestor in Tupi, the language spoken by these modern Amazonian peoples. In addition to these surprising findings about indigenous Australian DNA crossover, Reich and Skoglund's data also suggested that some indigenous populations in Canada had absorbed two later waves of migration from Siberia. These events occurred so long ago that it's hard to be certain of anything. But we can find shadows of clues. 
UC Berkeley researcher Johanna Nichols attempted in 1998 to reverse engineer an arrival date from another possible source, her own area of expertise, language. Linguists have been observing and documenting language long enough for us to have an idea of how long it takes a language to mutate into multiple dialects and for those dialects to evolve into distinct languages. So given the number of languages and dialects spoken by indigenous populations in the Americas today, if the Americas were peopled by a single population, it would put their arrival at roughly 19,000 years ago, which matches up with the layers of charcoal dating back about 20,000 years ago. All of this is to say that a much earlier settlement of the Americas is possible. But all the genetics proves is that population Y was present in the early Americas. It's not 100% clear that they beat the Clovis there. It is, however, a very plausible theory. It's difficult to be certain about anything that happened so long ago. Further study will shift the story for many years to come. And likewise, the ancient fires discovered in charcoal layers at these early sites could have been ignited by lightning or other natural causes. It's incredibly hard to distinguish a natural fire from a human-made fire after so much time has passed. To further complicate matters, the carbon dates researchers quote do not all agree. Some give dates as old as 40,000 years ago, some as recently as 20,000 years ago. Some researchers cite the use of boats in Japan 20,000 years ago, suggesting that a wave of explorers could have arrived from Japan around that time. Obviously, these are in fact two completely different theories, but because neither has been fully investigated, we have to lump them together in this discussion. Other researchers suggested Australians did in fact settle in the Americas, but only beat the Clovis to the coast of Chile by one or two thousand years, rather than almost 30,000. This, too, is a possible explanation for the Australian DNA found in some people living today in the Amazon rainforest. To truly understand all these puzzle pieces, scientists would need to study the remains of a Clovis person, and none has ever been found. Until a hot day in 1968, when two construction workers made a discovery that blew open 9,000 years of human history. We'll dive into those ramifications after this quick break. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Now, back to the story. We've established that the Clovis were probably not the first people in the Americas. 
But the Clovis culture was still enormous and stretched across both continents. Even if it wasn't the only game in town, it was certainly the biggest. Whether or not they were beaten to the Americas, the Clovis quickly absorbed, outcompeted, or supplanted their predecessors. Their descendants would not be replaced by any outside group for 12,000 years when the Inuit crossed from the Russian Arctic into the Canadian Arctic, replacing the Clovis descendant Dorset culture. And that means that it's definitely worth studying to learn more about the first major civilization in the Americas and to unlock a better understanding of how that civilization impacted everything that came after, including today's modern Native Americans. One place that these sorts of ancestral truths can be discovered is in human DNA. There are groups of traits that can be inherited together from a single parent, basically intact. These are known as haplotypes. These specific gatherings of haplotypes are called haplogroups. Through analysis of various haplogroups, we can pinpoint moments in history when various parts of the population have splintered off from one another. Haplotype research gives us a unique look at how our ancestors moved around, how they interacted with one another, and how they broke apart into different and distinct cultures. For years, scientists knew that the easiest way to analyze Clovis DNA would be extracting DNA from the remains of one of the Clovis. If they could find DNA from a Clovis burial, it would change everything. But for years, we had no usable DNA from the Clovis themselves. The genetic history of the Clovis people was formed mostly by inference. Assuming the Clovis were, in fact, the ancestors of most modern Native Americans, then genetic studies on Native Americans could tell some of the story. However, some indigenous groups in the Americas were reluctant to participate in such studies. This reluctance is understandable, given the fraught history of their relations with both the European powers that colonized the Americas and the colonial states that took their place. Events like the protests at Standing Rock prove that these conflicts are ongoing. Native people and Native governments have ample reason to be skeptical. And so, scientists continued to hold out for Clovis DNA. For years, it was just a pipe dream. Decades went by after the initial large excavation projects without any evidence of human remains associated with the Clovis. Archaeologists continued to find tools and Clovis spearheads across more than a thousand sites but they couldn't find any actual Clovis people. All that changed in 1968, when two construction workers discovered human bones along with Clovis culture tools at the Anzic family's Montana ranch. We open today's episode with a description of that discovery. The bones were covered in red ochre and belonged to two different children. Both were male. One died between the ages of 12 and 18 months, and the other died sometime between six and eight years of age. But carbon testing proved that these two boys were more than a few years apart. The infant's remains predate the older child's by almost 2,000 years. So how old is that infant really? Carbon dating estimates that he died between 12,700 and 12,500 years before present, right during the era of the Clovis people. Researchers named him Anzic One, and to this day, he is the only member of the Clovis culture to have been unearthed. The site on the Anzic family's ranch is the only known Clovis burial. Anzic One, then, 
could have been the key to unlocking and understanding so much about the relationship between the Clovis people and the Native Americans. But of course, there was a catch. In the 1960s, we didn't have the technology to fully extract and analyze ancient DNA. That wouldn't come around until the 2000s, when the American government was already locked in a high-stakes court case over another high-profile set of Native remains. In 1990, Congress enacted the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, or NAGPRA. NAGPRA was intended to place Native American artifacts and remains that had been confiscated for one reason or another by the government and federally funded institutions back into the hands of the tribes. These were historically treated as curiosities, both cultural and scientific, by the general American public. Now, for the first time, it was illegal to traffic Native American cultural items or remains, though there were some allowances made for things like digs that occurred on private property. And a big controversy reared its head in 1996 with the discovery of one of the most complete prehistoric skeletons ever found, Kennewick Man. Kennewick Man, as he's now known, was discovered in a dig on public land outside of Kennewick, Washington that summer. Carbon dating placed him at having died between 8 and 9,000 years before present. Four local tribes, the Yakima, the Colville, the Nez Perce and the Umatilla all claimed Kennewick Man as their ancestor and sought to have him reburied in accordance with NAGPRA's rules about repatriation. But researchers wanted to study Kennewick Man and argued that he was so old that he may not have any relation to the modern tribes in the area. Matters were quickly compounded by a few annoyingly relentless supporters of the Solutrean hypothesis. They claimed that Kennewick Man's skeleton looked like it could have been European, or rather, looked white. They claimed he was an early European migrant from France. The legal battle went on for nine years, and in 2004, the courts decided that Kennewick Man's remains couldn't be positively identified with any tribe, so he didn't belong to any of them. He belonged instead to science. And science spent the next decade studying Kennewick Man's DNA as the world waited for the results. Meanwhile, the controversy around Kennewick Man never fully died, with some scientists not really liking how the whole matter had been handled. One was Sarah Anzik, who was two years old when Anzik One's bones were discovered on her family's property. She grew up to work on the Human Genome Project, and she really wanted to study the remains of Anzik One to try and sequence his genome. But she didn't want to do it in such a way that it caused as much pain and controversy for the local tribes as Kennewick Man had in Washington. Anzik One, you'll recall, had been found on private land, so it wasn't subject to the same NAGPRA rules as Kennewick Man. Still, Sarah Anzik wanted to get a consensus from the native tribes nearby to see what she should do with the remains. There wasn't a consensus. Some wanted to look into it, but others just wanted the boy to be reburied. So she worked on other things until about 2009. That's when she began work with Eska Vilerslev to sequence his genome with as little damage possible to Anzik One's remains. With new and improved technology in place, Vilerslev was able to extract Anzik One's nuclear and mitochondrial DNA, along with his Y chromosome. 
they compared it to a small sample of modern Native Americans, with about 50 in the study, and they found a match. ANZIC-1 was closely related to indigenous populations, especially those in Central and South America. They continued to compare his remains to those of other ancient skeletons, including a 4,000-year-old Inuit child and a 24,000-year-old Paleo-Siberian child. ANZIC-1 was closely related to both, proving once and for all that the Clovis did originate in Siberia. Not in France. In June 2015, a Copenhagen lab went public with corroborating evidence that Kennewick Man's ancient DNA showed that he was related to modern-day Native Americans. With Anzik One's heritage proven, Sarah Anzik and her fellow researchers felt it would be wrong not to repatriate his remains. He was laid to rest a second time in 2017 at an undisclosed location in Washington. His burial ceremony was presided over by several local tribes, his kin. You can see, then, the implications that each new discovery about the Clovis or about other ancient Americans can have. Some people want to barrel forward and study without giving thought to the real people, the descendants of the Clovis and these other communities who simply ask for respect. So while it's still impossible to tell who were truly the first to settle the Americas, It seems clear that the Clovis people comprised the first major civilization on these continents. They populated half the world and gave way to countless cultures, languages, and ways of life. And while their civilizations might seem too ancient to reach, their ancestors still walk the land, a living link to the edges of our past. If you're looking for more Unexplained Mysteries, you can find us, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Many listeners ask how to help the show. If you enjoy the show, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review. A new episode comes out every Thursday. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kerry Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unexplained Mysteries is written by Dana Shaw and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.